We are indeed going to look at the passage uh, in Acts 8, starting in verse 26 this morning, where Philip, who later becomes known as Philip the Evangelist, we find that much later in the book of Acts, uh, gets his start as an evangelist by by going outside of uh, what the, the boundaries or borders of the church had been up to this point. Really, for the first seven chapters, the book of Acts has stayed in Jerusalem. But here in verse 8, we see things starting to change, and and the church moves out past its borders in mission. So today, I want us to think about what, what does it look like for mission to take us outside our comfort zone, outside the, the boundaries and borders and spaces and relationships that we're comfortable in, what might God be doing just on the borders? To help us kind of think about how that happens, I want you to think about borders in particular. When was the last time you were at or crossed over a border? Maybe it was you know, just the, the border between Vermont and another state going over a bridge Maybe. Maybe it was the, the checkpoint just north of here that takes us into Quebec and into, into Canada. Maybe it was at an airport traveling through uh, passport control there in, in the airport terminal. But I think borders are fascinating places to me because even though they're, they're just these you know, sort of dull, normal-looking places, In the space of a hundred yards, you could be stepping out of one reality and into a new one. Right At a border, you might be exchanging laws, you might be exchanging customs, you might be exchanging languages, or even kind of whole cultures when you step over that next space. Many years ago, I was studying abroad, and I bought a bus ticket from the city of Jerusalem down to Cairo, Egypt. And I was on that that bus with a few of my friends, and we boarded the bus late that uh, that evening that we purchased the tickets, and we got on and, and settled into our ride, and about midnight, the bus arrived at the border between Israel and Egypt. And for our purposes, we were crossing over the, the Rafa or the Gaza border in Israel, which if you observe world events much, you know that the Gaza Strip is one of the most volatile places on the planet. There's, there's always sort of an unrest happening in and around the Gaza Strip. So as a 19-year-old, I was far from home. I was far from where I was studying. I was far outside the borders of my comfort zone. And so we're, we're all lined up at midnight going through passport control. We're handing over our passports. And all my friends moved through the line. And they singled me out and they pulled me the, aside. And they looked at my passport picture, which had been taken a year before, when I was a clean-shaven, baby-faced, Midwestern kid from the U.S. And there in front of these border control agents was a hairy, backpacking college kid who hadn't shaved in four months And they looked at at, at the picture, they looked at me, and they said, this isn't you. You're staying right here. I thought, oh no. And the bus driver eventually made his way back over to see what was taking so long. And I could tell from the expression on his face, he wasn't interested in waiting all night for me to get through customs. And if something didn't happen soon, I would be spending the night in the Gaza Strip by myself, which wasn't very comforting. 
Finally, after what felt like an eternity of, of waiting and questioning, but in reality it was probably 20 or 30 minutes, finally a, a woman at the, the checkpoint came back and she waved me in. She said, you, you can come in now. And I sprinted to the bus where it was waiting and we got on board and we headed into Egypt. And it turned out the next week was one of the most adventurous, most exciting, memorable weeks of my young life up to that point, seeing all the incredible places in Egypt. But borders, as we arrive at them, as we attempt to cross them, they can be stretching, they can be disorienting places. But by going to border lands, border spaces, we also are given opportunities. Right? At borders, we encounter new faces. At borders, we might be asked to reflect on our own identity and past. And if we manage to, to exit out of our comfort zone and go across these borderland spaces, sometimes there are, are new adventures, new possibilities of transformation that open up to us on the other side. Today, as we start back into Acts 8, I want to follow a Hellenistic Jew named Philip, who, as Pete has just said, is, is guided by, is led by the Holy Spirit to leave his comfort zone and to go into these new borderland places. And he takes the, the mission of Jesus, he takes the mission of the church with him as he goes. In the same way that the Spirit guided and led Philip, I'd like us to consider how how might the Spirit be leading us, guiding us out of and to new places, borderland spaces, even in little Jericho, Vermont? I think these kinds of things are possible. What might be the, the borderlands here? Where are the, the places that maybe we're reluctant or hesitant to go, the kinds of relationships we're hesitant to enter into? But as the Spirit would guide and lead us, what sorts of, of people and friendships might we discover as God brings his church to the borders of mission? I want to pray for us before we open up to Acts 8 today. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us just the, the great overwhelming sense that your Spirit does indeed live in us, as persons, that you are active in the community of people, the family of your church, and that your desire is always to be expanding and extending the borders of this family, to bring others into, welcome into the presence and the worshiping life of the church. Lord, I pray that you would make our ears attentive to your word this morning. Pray that as I preach the words of my mouth, the movements and meditations of, of the hearts of all your people would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're, we're picking up in verse 26 of chapter 8. If you've got your Bibles out at home, you may want to turn there. And this is right after the martyrdom of Stephen in chapter 7, which we looked at two weeks ago. And even with the, the grief and the tragedy of Stephen's death, the, the days and weeks that follow usher in a, a new opportunity, a, a new moment for the church 
to be moved out of its comfort zone, right? It was safe. It felt connected there in Jerusalem. But now God is moving his church closer toward the fulfillment of, of the commandment Jesus had already given the church, right? The Great Commission. If you go back to the end of Luke's gospel, if you go to the beginning of Acts, we see Jesus challenging the church in a few ways. First, to go out, right? Jesus says, go to the nations and baptize them, right? In, in my name, in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. In Acts 1, right, we're told that that, that command would take them outside of Jerusalem to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That's the language used at the start of Acts. Well, Philip is almost single-handedly going to usher in the first wave of, of mission at the border here. We're skipping over verses 5 through 25 today in chapter 8, but there we find Philip leaving Jerusalem first to go to Samaria. Samaria being a community of, of people that in some ways were were ethnically divided from their Jewish neighbors. There was a lot of hostility between these two neighboring communities. But Philip courageously goes there. He shares the gospel, and incredible things start to happen. Transformation, conversion takes place. But just as things are getting excited, we find in verse 26 that Philip is yet again challenged and guided by the Spirit to go even farther from Jerusalem, even farther out of his comfort zone. And that's where we're picking up today. Acts 8, verse 26 and following. See if I can get this to advance. Can you move us forward? Thanks. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So if as we move through the book of Acts, we're asking this question, what does it mean to be in mission with God? I want to think about how Philip gets to be in mission here. Now, given what we read about Philip, we sense that he's probably a guy that, that likes to be where the action's at. Philip's a, a risk taker. Maybe we think of him as kind of the, the quintessential missionary who's willing to cross again into new socially or, or culturally or even racially different relationships than, than the ones he's familiar with. He's moving out of the comfort zone of Jerusalem. But even if Philip is, is a risk taker, he's willing to be moved out, I think at a deeper level what the book of Acts wants us to notice is that Philip is moved, Philip is led by the Spirit. He's a person who's learning what it means for the Spirit to lead his life. And in particular, he's learning how to be moved into proximity with where the Spirit is already working. So we see in verse 27 that at, a, at the prompting of the angel of the Lord, Philip finds the command to go south, right? Take 
the desert road to Gaza. And at that point, Philip doesn't really even know why he's headed there. He doesn't know what for. The Spirit doesn't tell him anything. The angel doesn't tell him anything other than where he is meant to go. But as he comes into proximity with that place, we find his path intersects another man's. And I think it's important for us to notice that not only Philip is being guided by the Spirit, but we have good reason to believe that the man Philip meets on the road, this Ethiopian official, is also responding to the work of God's Spirit in his life. We're told Philip meets an Ethiopian eunuch who would have traveled nearly a thousand miles, would have crossed multiple borders, spent weeks, if not months, to get to Jerusalem, where his one desire was to worship in that place. So we have Philip led by the Spirit. We have this Ethiopian eunuch compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem to try to worship there. And these two strangers are now guided by the Spirit to to have their paths intersecting in the middle of nowhere on the borderlands, uh, on the outskirts of Israel in the desert. I want us to think a little deeper about these two men and their paths. What, 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 What led them up to this moment? The African, the Ethiopian official is likely from what was known as the Kingdom of Meroe. It was a Nubian kingdom south of Egypt. And it was in the region the Greeks at this time called Ethiopia, which was simply a designation to signify everything south of Egypt that they didn't really know much about. He was actually likely from uh, present-day Sudan, is where this, this man's kingdom was. And he would have then been a a black man traveling from southern, the the south of Egypt, up to the road to Jerusalem. He would have entered the city there with great wealth, with the importance of his title. We, We know that he's in a chariot. But we find that he seems to go there not so much out of official business of the empire that he represents, but as a worshiper. He goes to worship the text says. He wants to encounter the presence of God in Jerusalem. But unfortunately, when he stepped out of his role as a royal official and into his desire to be a worshiper, it's then that he is faced with tremendous barriers. Not only would he have been a Gentile and a foreigner, but in his service, in his vocational work with the queen, he had been made a eunuch which means he he would have been castrated, possibly dismembered, which which means that by Jewish law, he would have been excluded from entering the temple. He would have been prevented from being circumcised, and therefore, he would have never been able to become a full convert to the Jewish faith, if he so desired. He could be a, a seeker, he could be interested in worshiping the God of Israel, but he would always be an outsider looking in. So that's one of these strangers in the desert at Gaza. The second stranger on that road is Philip, who we're told back in chapter 6 is a Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jew, most likely, who was living in, in Jerusalem up to this time. 
But back in chapter 6, which we looked at about a month ago here at church, we, we talked about how he and, and his other Greek-speaking friends encountered their own barrier and resistance, right, in trying to enter into the, the community of the earliest church, which was comprised by a majority of Hebrew speakers. Philip, though, we know, was an outsider who became an insider in the church. He was appointed as one of the first deacons because of the reconciling work and the transforming work of God's spirit in that community that was able to overcome and tear down that barrier. So here we have these two men led and guided by the spirit to be on this road at the same time on the borders of Israel. And now listen to what the Spirit tells Philip in verse 29. He says to Philip, go over to that chariot and stay near to it. The Spirit says to Philip, what I want you to do is, is now that you're listening to me and being guided by me, I want you to get even closer to what I'm doing. Create proximity with where I'm working. Get close to this outsider who is hungry to be an insider and be welcomed into the presence of God. Get close enough so that you can see what I'm doing there. And so I think that would be our first point, our first question for application. Where is the Spirit of God today guiding you, desiring for you to create proximity with those who are outside outside of the kingdom, outside of the church, but longing. Maybe the Spirit's working and stirring a sensitivity and a desire to know him. But they've been prevented up to now. Where would the Spirit guide us into proximity with those neighbors? Very possibly those are people who don't look like us, people who don't have the same background, the same viewpoints, the same starting points in life that we do. But they, too, are looking for something Someone to worship. Right? Who are the outsiders God desires for you to love to become insiders in his kingdom? What would it be like for you to to stay near to them like Philip does here? We see as Philip gets closer to this man's chariot, God opens up an entry point then for, for deeper connection and deeper understanding to take place. Look at verse 30. Then Philip ran up to the chariot. He heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Philip said, do you understand what you are reading? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. It's from Isaiah 52. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him about the good news of Jesus. So the 
The mission that God has for us as his church is right partly to get us into proximity, to follow his spirit where he's already working. But then as we get close enough to those persons or places or situations, he wants us to observe. He wants us to hear and see what, what he's already been doing before we ever showed up. That's, that's part of, I think, how God works in mission. So here, Philip obeys. He follows the spirit to Gaza. He comes up next to the chariot. He stays alongside it. And as he gets close enough to be within earshot, he overhears the man reading something in his chariot. And that, in and of itself, is actually pretty normal in the ancient world. People in the ancient world, for the, the large, large measure, could not read in their heads like we do. That just didn't happen. So if you read something, you had to read it out loud. That's how you were trained and taught. So the man is in his chariot. He's reading something aloud as he's, he's taking the long road home. But of all the things this man could be reading in this moment, he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And if you would bear with me, I think it's worth imagining or reflecting kind of a thought experiment. How in the world did this Ethiopian official come to be reading this text of scripture at that moment? Remember, he's not simply thumbing his way through an NIV Bible in the, in the glove compartment of his chariot. Right? First of all, they didn't have glove compartments, probably. Second of all, they didn't have Bibles. Right? Those things didn't exist. What he likely holds in his hands is a scroll which would have been copied carefully from another scroll at incredible expense, right? Regular people couldn't own these things. But he has one because of his status and wealth. But it means, you know, you couldn't carry around the whole Old Testament in your chariot. So he's chosen probably to purchase one or maybe a few scrolls that were significant to him to take back with him. And he has this one open because it has special importance to him. Why? Why Isaiah, and in particular, why this part of Isaiah? The end, you know, the second, maybe the last third of that book. Well, let me try to make a few, I hope, informed guesses as to what, what's gathered his interest. First of all, if you look kind of Isaiah 40 onward, there is this repetition of, of a phrase that God, in, in the time when, when he would begin to do new things and fulfill this, this vision of a, a new worshiping community in Jerusalem, that he would draw in people from the ends of the earth, nations from, from all over the world. That phrase, ends of the earth, is repeated throughout this part of Isaiah. Well, in the Roman world in which this book is being written, the ends of the earth more often referred to places like Ethiopia. This was where literally the, the Roman maps stopped past this kingdom. They didn't know what was out there. So for this man, right, he's reading in Isaiah about promises to people like himself. Secondly, as Isaiah talks about the, the ingathering of these nations from all over the ends of the earth, Isaiah goes so far to say that these foreigners would also be blessed by God as he poured out his spirit in a new way. And I read in the call to worship this morning from Isaiah 56. Let me give you just a few verses from Isaiah 56 where it says this. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. Why might that have resonance with this eunuch? Now listen, the next verse. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. 
For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who do what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them within my temple where they could not go, within my temple and in its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters, I will give them. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Right, so this is the same section of Isaiah he's reading from just a couple chapters later. And if I were an Ethiopian eunuch from the far-flung ends of the earth, this passage, right, as I came to Jerusalem to worship, would get my attention, would matter to me. So I think we have this Ethiopian man then who is hungry to know God. And I think he has chosen these promises He's chosen to to meditate on them and to pray them and to read them in his chariot because even though he's a foreigner and he is a eunuch, he longs to be a worshiper of God. He's hungry to have that, that full sense of welcome. But right in the middle of these chapters, in that section of all these great things that God is doing, drawing the nations to Jerusalem, right in the middle of that, there are these really confusing poetry sections, songs, about a servant of Israel who would suffer. And specifically, it says, right, this this servant of God would be deprived of justice. He would give away his life. He would have no descendants of his own. But he would offer himself in order to redeem not only Israel, but to bring blessings to the nations as well. Right? He would he would create, he would affect that exchange. And this is precisely the passage Philip hears this man reading in verse 32 and wondering about. Philip chooses to ask a gutsy question. He says, do you understand what you're reading? Do you know what that's about? And the eunuch replies, how can I unless someone explains it to me? I think that's, that's a beautiful image of, of an invitation from this man. These, these two men who are strangers, who have been led by God's spirit and arranged to meet here from different cultures, different races, all sorts of borders and barriers that could separate them from each other. Instead, here, because of what God is doing, they, they decide to dig into relationship with each other. I love verse 31. It says... The eunuch invited Philip to come up into the chariot and sit beside him. And not just to get near his chariot, but get in the chariot with him, beside him. I think that's a powerful portrait, picture, image of how God accomplishes his mission. When was the last time you got up into somebody's chariot with them? Right, when was the last time you risked asking sensitive but significant questions about about what God is doing in your life and in their life and with someone God has placed in your proximity? Do we trust that the Spirit of God will show up in those conversations and work in that process and, and open up space for life and light? Well, because of Philip's obedience, because he got near to the chariot, because he got up into the chariot, because they begin to have this conversation in verse 34, now what does the eunuch ask? 
He says to Philip, Philip, I want to know, who is this prophet talking about? Who is this suffering servant, right? Who is this person that, that affects the reconciliation of foreigners and eunuchs and, and the far-flung corners of the earth into a worshiping community together? Can you imagine what Philip is thinking as that question lands in his lap? And he's thinking, oh man, you have no idea. Right? He's ready. Because it, it just so happens that for the earliest Christian church, probably from its first days in Jerusalem, definitely from its first decades that we have in, in, in its history, these passages, these chapters of Isaiah were the book, the scriptures that the church used to worship. And they used them to explain the life and the mission and the healing purpose of Jesus, the Messiah. So he's ready, right? There in the, the chariot, it says in verse 35, Philip begins with this packet passage and he explains, he shares with them about the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he does. So we're called to get close to, to initiate, to get into proximity and relationship with those on the borders. We're called to get even closer and, and dig into deeper conversations of where God's spirit is at work. Get into their chariots. Thirdly, I want us to see how this passage resolves. How God's spirit works even further to remove barriers in those relationships. Verse 36 through 40. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And so he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns till he reached Caesarea. And if you go on to the next section of Acts, we'll notice that all those towns that he visits is where the gospel goes next, right? Philip is the pioneer. But here at the end of this story, right, they're, they're traveling along this coastal plain in what Luke says is a desert place outside of Gaza. It's dry, there's nothing there, there are ruins of an old city named Gaza nearby. But they managed to come upon a sizable enough pool of water that someone could be immersed in it. Right? Deep enough that this eunuch sees from his chariot a pool in which he could be baptized. It seems as though, yet again, God has orchestrated this. He's put this in their path. And so after hearing what Philip has had to say about this suffering servant in Isaiah, after he's connected it to the person of Jesus, this Ethiopian official is longing to take a step that he, he's waited years to do. Right? He wants to be baptized. He wants to be welcomed. He wants to be a, a full participant in the worshiping life of God's people. But notice what he says in verse 36. He sees the water, but he, he's struggling with a question. And I don't think the question here is rhetorical. I think it matters to him. 
Right? Seeing this pool of water, he asks, what can stand in the way of my being baptized? And I think he has some pretty good ideas. Right? He's, I think, looking for the fine print. Right? Looking for the, the religious legalese that will yet again disqualify him from being a full, full member in this community of Jesus. Right? Remember what his experience must have been like in Jerusalem and at the temple. Right? You can get close, but not too close. But as the chariot comes to a stop here, he finds that whatever obstacles, whatever barriers, whatever borders, whatever stumbling blocks, whatever rejection he had become accustomed to, they're just not there. Philip doesn't even answer his question in words. And what does Philip do? Gets out of the chariot with this man, and he proceeds to walk into the waters of baptism together by his side. And in the, in the church of Jesus from its beginning, baptism is never something you do by yourself. Right? It always happens through the worshiping people of God. There's always someone there next to those being baptized to impart and to signify the, the movement of God's spirit through his people. Imagine the sense of worship and acceptance and healing that gets poured out in this moment through these two men. Far from Jerusalem, far from Ethiopia, but on the border of God's transforming mission through his church. So the, the third and final application or question I give you this morning to think about is as you get close enough to walk alongside those who are outside God's kingdom, longing to come in, as you sit down and, and dig into your lives with one another, how might God then also use you to pull down the barriers, to remove the hindrances, to, to take away the things that have pre prevented them from being part of God's church up to now? Right, whatever feeling of condemnation they may be wrestling with. Whatever feeling of, of religion that's unattainable for them. Whatever part of their past or their identity or, or who they are that has kept them, prevented them up to now. Right, through the movement of God's spirit and mission, God desires to break those things down. Right, to create a place, a name, an everlasting invitation to worship him and be with his people. Let me pray for us as a church that we could walk with God in these, in these ways. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you lead us and be our guide? Would you take away our fear to draw close to those who you are working in and among, but who have yet to, to come close enough to your people? Lord, help us to go beside them, to sit with them, Help us, Lord, to have the hunger and the vision and the confidence that your spirit could lead us to a day where we enter the waters of baptism together with them. We pray these things in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.